and welcome and thanks for joining me here at the wonderful world of wealth tech in the WM Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Eskowitz, and I run a consulting company called Ezra Group. We help wealth management firms and wealth tech vendors make better business and technology decisions through our advice and research. On this podcast, I speak with some of the smartest people in the industry who are on the leading edge of both technology and innovation. And before I forget, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. I would really appreciate it. special series of the Wealth Management Today podcast that we call Winners of Wealth Tech. It's a special series where I interview leaders of the industry and disassemble their habits and traits that have enabled them to achieve their success, as well as try to extract nuggets of wisdom and best practices to share with all of you. And this month's winner of Wealth Tech is Lita Sanka, former CTO of Satera. And Lita and I have worked together on some projects. And, you know, when you're working on any project, uh, you know, there was a very large project with a big team. Uh, you spend a lot of time together uh, with the team talking and you do, there's some downtime. And, you know, I picked up snippets of her life and her background that I didn't, that I didn't know. And the more I learned, the more I really wanted to get her on the program. Uh, you know, you're in, you're in a hotel, your hotel bars, you're at the, the airport, you know, you're at dinner and you kind of pick up little bits and pieces. And, and there was so much interesting stuff that she had done with her career that I really wanted to get her on, and she's this month's winner of Wealth Tech, and I'm really happy that I was able to get her uh, on the program, interview her. And I know you're going to enjoy this episode, so I won't hold back any longer. Here we go. And I'm happy to present uh, my guest on this special episode of Winners of Wealth Tech. Uh, I have Lita Sanka, Principal Consultant, Strategic Tech Consulting and also author of the very popular book on Amazon, How to Lead a Corporate Spinoff, The Tech Leader's Survival Guide to Strategic Divestiture. Hey, Lita. How hey, are Greg. You? Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. You made it. Finally. We've been planning this for six months. Now you're here. <laughs> here Woo. I am. Now we're part- So thanks for being uh, here. Thanks for agreeing. Uh, uh, to do this, and uh, we're happy to have you as a winner of Wealth Tech in our Winners of Wealth Tech series. And you know, so we've known each other f- uh, for a bit, and we've done some work together. And you know, I really, the more I learned about your history and the things you've done, the more I really wanted to get you on the program and talk more in depth. Because all the work we've done together, we've only talked about work or things we're doing now. We haven't really talked about the past, and I really like talking about people's origin stories how they got into the industry, what made them who they are today, how they got to the successful people they are. Uh, so I really wanted to go back in time a bit and talk about how you got into the industry. So coming out of school, what made you come in, you know, come into the financial services industry? Yeah, well, thanks, thanks for asking about that. One of the things that I... Um, find interesting about my story is that I had no idea of what I wanted to do with my career, my life. You know, when I think back to childhood, my parents and I, we never sat around and talked about going to college. We never made plans. Um, 
the most I ever thought was like every other eighth grader that maybe, maybe I'll be a veterinarian. You know, I loved pets. So uh, a different roadmap for you. You know, so how do you go from there to here is always a fun story. So it really happened um, with some synchronicity. I was, it's junior year in high school, 1983, was sitting there. Um, it wasn't even a remarkable teacher who was influential in my life in any way. And he started talking about uh, how there was such a need for computer programmers. And he said, all you need to do is, you know, two miles down the road, is this technical college, you can go there, learn to be a programmer. And uh, after two years, only two years, you can get a job in Hartford, Connecticut, making $18,000 a year. Nice. And that was it. I was sold on working well, I made a my first job. computer programmer. And that was the day I decided I was gonna go to tech school. And I went to tech school and I was so thankful that I was actually pretty good at it. And my friends who were in the school were not so good at it. So I would do my own homework, my own programs, and then I would do everybody else's, but I would do them a different way. And so I was writing the same uh, exercises in three, right. four, four different ways. And I got to be um, you know, pretty, pretty proficient at programming in a lot of different languages pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And it was quickly after that, I decided to go to University of Connecticut for a four-year degree get into MIS, management information systems. Mm -hmm. And then I really went right into the financial industry right after that. I started uh, at Aetna Financial Services that ultimately mm -hmm. became IMG. So right. it was really a, 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 lucky, a lucky break I got. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes on. it's better to be lucky than smart, right? I, I, I felt the same way in my career. I just happened to be the right place at the right time a lot of, for a lot of things. Yeah, so... Um, you know, then quickly after I got into the industry, I started as a programmer. I actually made a little bit more than 18000 a year when I started. So I was, you know, coughing up my wins right away. And then my life goal at that point, I was probably just 21, 22. My life goal was to buy a house. Mm -hmm. And so quickly after I graduated college, I bought my first home. And now I was sitting at home, you know, dirt poor, house poor for, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I was watching infomercials, and when it when did you guess it? At that time, Tony Robbins shows up selling his oh wow, his personal power, uh, you know, thirty day program. So I spent the three hundred dollars or whatever it was at that time, got these programs, and from the time I was 23, 24 years old, I started setting goals. And you know, Excellent. the one thing one thing I learned that early in life is you have to set your dreams big. Mm -hmm. And whatever it is, write it down on a piece of paper. So I wrote down on a piece of paper that day, it was 24, that I wanted to be the CIO of a company and live in California at the beach. And I basically spent the next 20 years of my life taking every calculated step as much as I could, mm -hmm. often just being in the right place at the right time, but really focusing and working really hard to ultimately end up getting there. And right. uh, I moved to California in 2006. Mm -hmm. And a few years later, the, the market crashed. People will remember that. Sure. And I was working at ING at the time and they decided to sell our division. Oh. And we was working within the broker dealer industry in California. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I had literally just gotten promoted to what they call a head of apps. So all I knew was app dev. Right. And they tapped me on the shoulder with, you know, 12 other executives mm -hmm. and said, go sell your division. We need to raise some money. <laughs> and so what was overnight, that? that's not something you expect to hear. No, overnight it went from really effectively a middle, middle manager to a CIO overnight, chief information officer. What was that like? I mean, that, that can't be something you were expecting. And it must well, be I was very excited, right? Because I was going to meet this big goal of mine. And so, mm -hmm. you know, my life dream came true. Mm -hmm. uh, what I wasn't prepared for is how difficult that transition was, mm -hmm. how much I didn't know. Right. And it quickly made itself apparent that I didn't really know anything about security. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about infrastructure. I didn't know you know, a lot about finances for being part of an executive team on a company. So it was an uphill battle. I didn't have actually any of my business licenses at the time. Mm -hmm. Needed to also go get my series seven at the same oh, wow. time while we were doing this. <laughs> uh, but it was, um, it was an opportunity of a lifetime mm -hmm. and it's sort of sink or swim. Well, you, you know, jump in the deep water and sink or swim. Mm -hmm. And yep. It was probably, you know, career defining moment for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a layout. Luckily, my background at ING had been all program management. Mm -hmm. So large programs, bigger and bigger as we went. And that that huge transformational project program management was my sweet spot. And basically helped define the entire, you know, technology spin-off process for how we would get ourselves away from ING and stand ourselves up as an independent company. Mm -hmm. uh, I ran the whole thing like it was a giant program. And uh, you know, at that time, my you know, my biggest accomplishment at the time is that we we came in under budget and uh, you know, we did it in 11 months. It was under under schedule, under budget. So right. ahead of schedule, right? Ahead of schedule was awesome. Yeah. And so after that, or what was the biggest thing you learned from that? That was your first corporate spinoff, right? That was the first time you had done that. So what, what, what was the biggest takeaway besides the fact you didn't know what you're doing, but then you had to learn, you know, it's like building, a, building an airplane, jumping off a cliff and building an airplane on the way down. What was your biggest learning from that experience? Well, it's not really a single biggest learning other, other than you can't do it all yourself. Mm. If I had to single it out, you can't do it all yourself. You, you really need to um, have an awesome team. You really need to have great relationships with, with the business partners. And you really need to um, have a lot of strategic partners in your toolbox that you can rely on to come in and help you. Right. And uh, I use the word partners because a lot of tech leaders say, oh, this vendor, that vendor, and mm. it's all about vendor management mm -hmm. but i would say the culture that i wanted to bring into the organization and effectively i use today now that i'm an independent consultant and a mm -hmm. and a vendor myself is that partnership is the is the way to go and trying to get whoever it was that i was helping whether it's professional services firm vendor management uh, software firm infrastructure management whatever it was uh, treat them like my partner, get them so that they had skin in the game with my success as much as I did. And uh, that probably was the biggest lesson that I wasn't an island anymore. You know, everything that gets you to that success is all about your personal 
performance. And then once you get in that leadership role, it's not really all about you. It's about how do you motivate everybody, lead everybody and effectively manage a large mm. effort. It's not really about yourself anymore. Sure. It's like the, uh, the, the image I see a lot talking about the two different kinds of leaders. One is the leader who's behind their people, whip cracking the whip, go, go, go. The other one's the one in the front of the people saying, let's go, follow me. It's, a, it's very two very different mindsets. Yeah, you, you have to be out in front, but mm -hmm. you have to make sure you're bringing everybody along. And, <laughs> and I had, you know, I was putting in tremendous amount of hours uh, for many years. So it was around the clock. And uh, sometimes that's not a good example to set for your people, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> the second lesson I would learn, I would say I learned from Satara was, uh, you know, and I had gotten this feedback early on from Valerie Brown, who ultimately is my mentor. Mm -hmm. She said, it's, it's a marathon lead and not a sprint. Mm -hmm. You got to pace yourself. And then, uh, of course, I was, you know, in my mid-40s, thought I was invincible. Yeah, right? yeah. You could do anything. Mm -hmm. And so I, I didn't pay attention. And I, I did ultimately uh, hit, hit a wall a little bit mm -hmm. and get burnt out. So along the long, long haul there is uh, you have to sometimes lead by example. So you have to work really hard. I set the stage. I was out in front, but it was dependent on having a great team. And, uh, you know, now I would say I, would, I, would, I try to help people have a little bit more balance in their lives now. I'm going to take a break from this episode to talk about one of our sponsors. Uh, it's the Invest in Others Foundation. The Invest in Others Foundation recognizes individuals and firms that are making a difference by donating their time and money to causes that matter to them. By sharing their stories and awarding funding to organizations they care about, they raise awareness, encourage others to get involved, and channel additional resources to those in need and demonstrate the generosity of the financial advice industry. Uh, I donate some of my time uh, to this organization, and I'm, uh, I'm honored to be a judge uh, to award uh, money to different charities that are uh, supported by financial advisors. And there's lots of charities available. There's local charities, there's national charities. So uh, donating money to the Invest in Others Foundation, you're able to help people not only in the U.S., but all around the world. The website is investinothers.org. Uh, please go there and donate whatever you can. I know they would appreciate it and uh, you will feel better about it. Yeah, that's an important aspect, especially now people are realizing how important the work-life balance is. So I think you're, you're a bit ahead of the curve. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, there were a lot of things, and even if you think in the last 10 years, they start talking about, well, the, the emergence of, you know, tech everywhere, you know, wearable devices, everything. Mm -hmm. They say, you know, it's more about into integrated life. And so, you know, I totally agree. It is integrated life, but you have to have your go-to um, things that really allow you to recharge. So by balance, I don't mean you get to work 35 hours a week, you know, I, by balance, I mean, you have that thing that gives you peace, whether it's your family or whether it's a hobby or whether it's your exercise or whatever is that release for you. Um, that's really what I mean. Mm -hmm. trying, to, trying to make sure that there's more than one important thing in your life. 
It's mm -hmm. more than just getting ahead in your career. Indeed, do you? So let me go back in a little bit. One question I forgot to ask. So when, uh, so I, I have a degree in computer science. So I started as a programmer as well. And there were, there were very few women in our, in our, our degree program. And there were very few women programmers I met at the time, even though actually as a percentage of programmers, there were more back then than there are now. For some reason, the, the percentage of women programmers has not increased. Did you feel anything different or did you feel that you were sort of alone when you were, when you came out of school and you started as a programmer at a big financial services firm as a woman? I didn't feel alone as, as a woman. Um, I didn't see it as a gender, gender difference. I just didn't see it. Um, I, I did realize uh, a little later on about, you know, maybe 10 years in that there were some ways of interacting with other people that men had that I didn't have. So there was, I didn't feel uncomfortable, but there were things that I didn't know about simple things that you don't even think about. So we'd come into a meeting and I was working really closely with this guy. And, uh, you know, when another man walked into the room, he would immediately stand up, walk over and shake the guy's hand. And, you know, and I at first did it and none of the women would do that. And he wouldn't do that with any of the women either. So early on, I learned by, by mimicking this guy, I'm like, Oh, I should be doing that. And so, um, <laughs> Yeah. But it's not like somebody ever told me that. It's not like, but it, and it was uncomfortable. Mm. You know, I didn't learn as growing up, you shake hands with people. That wasn't, I mean, maybe mm. that's a given today, but back then I, I didn't learn that. And that was something I learned sort of on the job that helped me over time get a voice. Yeah. I like to, I like to sometimes mm. talk to people when I'm doing motivational speaking, tell people they often don't believe it, but there was a time in my career where I had hard a hard time speaking up in meetings of just like four or five people. Mm -hmm. What was that? I don't know, it's a confidence issue, I guess. And you know, you have to break through that at some point. But I don't think that's any different for women than it really is for men. How did you overcome that? That the issue about being able to speak? I just push myself. So, you know, I, I always set those goals. I told Tony Robbins, how do I want to behave? Hey Tony. You know, fake it, fake it till you make it, I guess. Mm -hmm. I would push myself and eventually became habit, right? So, you know, there's there's the saying, I, I don't know it exactly, but Latsu said, uh, you know, be careful of what you think, be careful of your thoughts, they become your actions, be careful of your actions, they become your thoughts. Yeah, they, they, they turn to yeah, habits. They become your yeah. habits, whatever, whatever yeah. that is. But it's, it's true of positive stuff too. Like if you put all this positive stuff in mm -hmm. your head and you put all these positive self-talk which is what I always used to do. And you could do it. You can pump yourself up. You can you can shake hands. You mm -hmm. can you can be that. And over time, it just became natural. Yeah. Again, you're ahead of the curve. I think those those books came out later about you know positive the power of positive thinking and you know self reinforcement and there's, there's a lot of that. Yeah, I was crazy. I had an hour commute from this house I bought mm -hmm. to work in Hartford and. I had all these Tony Robbins tapes and over and over again, I would nonstop listen to, you know, everything he said on the way mm -hmm. to work and practice all these techniques. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a big NLP guy yeah. and uh, I would practice all this stuff and all my meetings all day long and come home and listen to the tape all over again. And eventually all this stuff just became like it stuck. 
stuck. Yeah. yeah. Practice. Everything is practice. That's for sure. So, so we're, we're, we're talking about uh, Sotera. And you mentioned uh, Valerie Brown, who's a wonderful, wonderful person, really super smart. At least, uh, you know, I, I was lucky enough to work with her a little bit or work for, work for her as a consultant on, on, a, on a project. Um, so got to know her. And when you said she told you, Lita, that it's a marathon, not a sprint, but you didn't listen and you got burned out. No. So what did you do to get unburned out? How did you, re, re, you know, recharge and refresh yourself? Yeah, we have to fast forward a number of years. Um, so I worked really closely with Valerie and was an executive at Cetera for about six and a half years. Ultimately, uh, in the history of Cetera, uh, there was a, uh, a sale of a company from Lightyear Capital to uh, RCS mm -hmm. Capital. At some point, I like to tell the story too. It's more about myself, Craig, so I'm sorry The whole thing is that. about you, Lita. Come on. Yeah. No, I was not... I was not actually excited about my work anymore. Mm -hmm. We were not spending money. I was not working on the types of projects I wanted. One of my one of my paths to burnout was to hire my successor, who I loved. It was Mook Meta. We got along terrific. Um, but it just wasn't feeling the same passion and energy that I had when I was at the helm and leading the organization through significant transformation. And uh, so I was out. On Friday afternoon, I was out walking on the beach because uh, I did ultimately get my house on the beach in California. All and right. I was on mile seven of a 10 mile walk because I was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I decided right there that I was gonna retire. So I was 49 and you know, I wasn't the only one who was involved with me making decision. that kind of decision. Kind of worked out. <laughs> The details with my partner at the time, and I went in a Monday, and I and I retired, and so I took a couple years and sort of went on a soul searching. You know, really within a, another week, I I happened to um, be at a Deepak Chopra event, and he was teaching us how to meditate, and I had uh, whether it was the euphoria of letting go of work or the responsibility or whatever it was, I. Uh, had a overwhelming spiritual experience at the Deepak Chopra Center in California and decided that meditation was like the secret mm. way of life. And um, what had I been missing out on all this time? And so I ultimately spent about a year and a half um, traveling around the world. I went to visit a lot of different countries, uh, meditated my way around. I became an instructor for Deepak Chopra to teach meditation to other people. And I started retraining myself in terms of um, being executive and a life coach. Uh, and then ultimately, I stumbled across how do you um, grow your own consulting company. Hmm. And I went to a workshop. And uh, the secret to growing your own consulting company at that time was that you have to write a book. <laughs> right? What are you an expert yeah. at? And at this point in time, you know, the advisor group had called me up and I had done some consulting work for them as they were in the process of spinning off from AIG. So I was able to go over there and leverage, you know, a lot of the skill sets and the things that I learned at Cetera. And I did it a second time, but now as a consultant. And so when I'm in this workshop and they're like, if you want to be a consultant, you have to be an expert at something. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm not an expert at anything. You know, I'm just the IT lady. 
And then ultimately what I figured out is that I am an expert at running huge, large transformational mm -hmm. projects. I know how to do it. I know how to bring structure. I know how to bring like order to the chaos. Mm -hmm. And I know how to lead a lot of people through that. And so ultimately I decided I would write the book, mm -hmm. you know, to just give myself a little credibility and, mm -hmm. and some confidence. I guess right. confidence is the theme. Yeah, so I needed theme. to always, I'm noticing that. You know, no matter how successful you think you are, some people, maybe everybody, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always that little voice that could nag you in the back that says, am I, am I doing everything right? Am I doing the best mm -hmm. I can? So ultimately, um, to answer a long story, uh, I retooled myself. I started consulting. I traveled. Mm -hmm. And I really, the spiritual experience that I had at the Deepak Chopra Center changed my values overnight. So I literally was a different person. Mm -hmm. And it took me a little while to get my, get my sea legs back, mm -hmm. I'll call it, so to speak. And I've recently started working with Advisor Group again uh, as a consultant, helping them with, with a large technology transformation mm -hmm. project that they have going on. And for someone who's retired, I'm sure, surely working a lot. Yeah, I noticed that. So I still, I still like to hang on to that label, like, oh, I'm retired. I could, I'm I could tempt you out of retirement for my project last year. Yeah, well, we worked together, and that really just kind of got me excited about working again. So I really appreciate that. I have that, that effect on um, people. But now, yeah, now I bring this new, centered, mm -hmm. different perspective really to everything. Right. And the little thing that would trigger me before um, when I was approaching burnout, oh. like it just doesn't bother me as you know, I'm not going to say I don't get my feathers ruffled once in a while, but it's just not the same. You know, I used to think that the spinoff from Satara, I mean, to become Satara was my biggest accomplishment. Right. And frankly, it's coming back. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, coming back now is the biggest accomplishment. Mm. And so how did I overcome the burnout? I just took time time for myself, invested in myself, and uh, found myself again. That's great. That's actually great advice for people to go find themselves. But I want to go back to Satara. So you became a CIO, which was your goal. So you made it there. And then you transitioned to the CTO. But what was some of, the, some of the biggest challenges you faced in those roles at Satara? A growing broker-dealer, you know, that, well, they had you know five or ten broker dealers, right? So there was a lot going on, a lot of lot of change, and a lot of a lot of a lot of things happening at the time. So, what was some some of your biggest challenges you faced there? Well, as the CIO, the um, the one thing I felt was my would be the secret to my success was to be really close to the customers. So I spent a lot of time out there talking to the field. I visited um, many advisor offices. I. I don't know if I said a hundred, I probably would be um, sure of how many I actually visited. I would go to every single, we had multiple firms. So I would spend a lot of time at all the conferences and this is really on top of the day job, mm -hmm. right? Cause my job wasn't sales. I was mm -hmm. the, the CIO, yeah. but I wanted to have a really intimate knowledge with the advisors mm -hmm. and what they needed. What were the pain points? Uh, you know, not every single thing an advisor ever wanted would be something that we could run back and do. You know, there are budgets, there are constraints, mm -hmm. there are capacity sure. issues in the organization around how many projects you can work on at the same time. 
you know, people don't often remember that. It's not just about, uh, you know, you don't have unlimited money and unlimited time. So uh, it's the hardest part is constantly, was constantly keeping up with the changing trends in the industry. So things were really taking off. Mobility was really in its infancy early on there and figuring out how to become a player in that space. And then really convincing that that was the right priority for the firm to spend the focus. We were integrating companies and trying to create efficiencies and all of that. So um, slick high tech was, was competing against other type of merger consolidation type of activities. And, you know, that's the balancing act for all senior technology leaders, right? Yes. How do you find that balance? You have to stay ahead. You have to be innovative. You have to become fresh in, you know, in an industry like ours, with so many fintech firms, right? The, the advisors are out there and they're running to these conferences. They're, they're interacting with fintech firms directly. And so the, they're, the firms are creating a pent up demand with advisors and to be responsive to advisors, they're constantly, what have you done for me lately? Sure. Right? So you have to constantly be rolling out new, new yeah. things. And they have to know you have a vision of where you're going, a roadmap, mm -hmm. um, and then they have to have trust in you. So you have to, they can tell the difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, any client can tell the difference when someone's just. Well, they're just, they're just saying the word, the platitude. Versus yeah, they don't really mean it. They're just, they're just throwing out the words that they think you want to hear. Yeah. And so I would say, you know, that's the balancing act that I had at Satera. And then in the CTO position, um, as, as Mu came on and was the CIO, my role was to try to help us formulate um, some standardized practices in the organization around vendor management and trying to create a cadence around uh, road mapping in our products and really try to introduce product management as a competency in the organization. And uh, the biggest challenge there is uh, in a lot of organizations I know think about it today is big companies work on projects and shifting from a project management to a product management focus when it comes to uh, internally developed software is a shift. You know, it's constant. You have to have a constant pipeline of enhancements, a constant pipeline of changes. You know, it, it's a, it's a different um, mindset and not all companies are ready to tackle that. That change. So you said the biggest tr biggest challenge was keeping up with industry trends. And what what would a tip be for other CIOs? A tip for staying fresh, uh, up to date with uh, industry trends. Well, I did a lot of reading. I'm sure everybody does a lot of reading. I I did. I went to a lot of conferences, which uh, you know just added to the overall pace. Mm -hmm. Uh, what I would do now uh, is I'd have an innovation, a technology innovation leader mm -hmm. on my team so that, you know, I wouldn't have to be personally trying to juggle that, ba that, that, that balance. And I would have, you know, product management as a competency so that that would, that would be the number one thing I would try to do is introduce product management and start having, you know, those innovative uh, field facing people doing the ones and really thinking about not, Again, this is, I didn't have to do it all on my own, but early on in, this, in the leadership position, I felt like I had to catch up and do some of that myself. What about, um, so one thing I wanted to bring up was a story you told me, um, and I think it's really, really helpful. 
about that you were you were kind of you were buying up companies when you were at Satera at a at a pretty quick pace, and you were leading that with someone else. I I apologize, I can't remember her name. Where you were you were you were figuring you had a process where you'd go into a new, um, I guess broker dealer you were buying, and you had a whole process for integrating them or or, or evaluating whether they'd be a good fit and whether you could how you could turn them around. Can you do a, like a quick couple things about that? How you learned that or how you how you made that into a process of evaluating firms that you went to look at? Yeah, well, I'd have to give a big shout out to my friend and partner in crime during that time period, Cindy Hamill. Cindy Hamill. Uh, Sorry, Cindy, I couldn't remember the, your name, I apologize. Chief, Chief Strategic Officer at a, a advisor group. And she and I, and obviously we had teams of people helping on this too, but she and I led the effort often when it came to um, modeling the portion of the portfolio, if we looked at a potential acquisition, we'd go in, we'd have a full day session, we'd, you know, whirlwind, deep dive through all operational and technology areas in the organization. And, you know, we'd, we'd kind of powwow afterwards and we'd be able to pretty much tell with a repeatable process whether it was a good fit, what the gotchas were, where, you know, we had, we had a process. We were able to tell pretty quickly, pretty quickly what we think the cost right. would be know what kind of efficiencies we would find and uh you know we got into a rhythm i i would say we looked at you know she would probably correct me because she knows some of these details better than i would i would say we looked at 14 different firms in a very short period of time and uh and then we ended up acquiring or doing uh some kind of strategic um relationship with at least four of those during that time period is how i would say that's impressive. You know, and then we had to execute right. on that. But we 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 proved we proved that we can spin off from ING yes. so quickly and under time, mm -hmm. you know, under schedule, under budget. So um, now it's to the opposite. If we can, let's buy them and bring them yeah, in. Yeah, we came in and we said, oh, we're going to buy them and integrate in this way. You know, we had a lot of credibility back then mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the repeatable process. And when you you so you and you could do that in, with just one day's evaluation. Yeah, I it, we might have done two days. It might have been like one day ops, one day tech, depending on how big the firm was. Still good. You know, not to say we wouldn't have due diligence, you know, mm -hmm. things to look at ahead of time that prepped us. But yeah, it was these these two days, one day, two days on site that really got us what we needed. And those, how do you feel about the, uh, those four firms you acquired? It was did those all go smoothly? You know, every firm, every time you do an acquisition, there's always some hidden, you know, hidden Easter egg that you didn't find. And I'm not saying that at no, all. <laughs> Easter egg? I don't know. Easter egg. like a landmine? Yeah, some little, there's some little gotcha mm. speed bump, yeah. you know, like the, there's nothing you can't overcome though, mm. right? Not a single issue. I mean, you can, there's always a way. I guess that's probably... There's always a way. Nothing is ever impossible. Yes. But you know, every acquisition you put it together, and there's some kind of gotcha. Mm -hmm. And but it's just kind of that's the thing that um, you know I worked really effectively well with Cindy Hamill when we were in that time period because we could we could brainstorm and overcome any obstacle together, us and our teams. Um, we would just do plain old decision making, right? What are their options? What are the pros? What are the cons? How are we going to do it? You know? Yeah. So that's, that's yes. But we could go in on any day and come up with a plan. And that's the, the mark of you know, a good leader and, and someone who is confident in their job and has a process. And you can, 
you can make those things happen. So I wanted to transition a bit from the, the LinkedIn phase of the conversation to more of the personality phase. So um, these are some questions I like, like to ask other winners of wealth tech to try to learn more about you in terms of what motivates you and what makes you tick. And I know you, you, you shared some of that already. Thank you very much. Um, but uh, here's a good question. So now that you're a consultant, it's different than being, you know, what your role as a CIO and CTO of a, of a you know, multi, multi-billion dollar organization with, with thousands of advisors. How do you stay motivated now? What's your secret? So I also like to tell everybody this when, I, when I'm speaking. So I'll tell you and your listeners, I just find joy in the process of the work itself. Mm-hmm. So there, there's not, it, is, it could be a day when you have a really horrible day and there's lots of issues and it's just one issue after another, but no, overcoming those seemingly mm-hmm. impossible challenge mm-hmm. is the joy for me. And taking something that looks chaotic, you know, that early phase of the project where it's just total chaos and you walk in, especially as a consultant and the, the usually whoever hired you is like, we don't, we don't really know how to get started. We know what we want, but what's, what's, what's step one. And uh, I always say, well, step one is find the right partner. Right. So then they hire me and then I get to come <laughs> in and I get to make order out of chaos. And that gives me just such internal joy mm-hmm. that um, I just have this passion and this drive from the joy of the work itself. Yeah. So, uh, That's great to hear no- from uh, being a consultant myself. How do you, so well, going back to one of the things you said that was very important in your role as CTO, CIO, was building a great team around you. you know, no person is an island. What are some, how do you identify people that will be a good fit on your team? Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you zeroed in on this a little bit more. Here's the thing, though. The secret of success at having a great team, you know, in the, you used to read books, and they used to say, oh, hire a good team and get out of their way. And I actually don't believe that at all. I think you absolutely need to have a phenomenal team. But you have to be aware of all the issues and know when to dive in. And you have to really get to know your people so that you know their blind spots and you can um, push them in the areas where they're probably not looking. And it's really about, you know, some people say verify, but trust. It's not really about trust. It's about knowing when they can benefit from having your engagement and you can't be hands off. So even though you hire a great team, you don't leave them alone. You can't be hands off. You have to be there with them involved, knowing what's happening, knowing the issues, you really have to have a pulse. And the challenge at any leader, we're pulled in so many directions, is how do you get to the point where you have that level of transparency in everything you're doing? And, uh, you know, as a consultant, um, we have to go in, our job is to give them transparency into, into things. And, you know, it's not about you know, sometimes that means telling people difficult messages, you know, delivering, here's some issues that we see, it's highlighting things that they personally might want to, you know, ignore, or they have their own blind spot, but really the secret is transparency. So you hire great people and you don't hire yourself, right? You can't, you can't hire somebody who's going to be your BFF and that has the exact same personality as you 
because we all have our <laughs> blind spots. We all have things that we don't do very well. And you have to create a team that consciously is filling the breadth of skills needed to be successful as a team. I'm in the process of talking to a company about potentially being on their board. And it's one of my first questions to them is, you know, what skills are you looking to add to the team? That's the only way I'll know if I'm a good fit or not. Is Do they have an answer? Do they go, uh, we just want you on the board? You no, know, it's a dialogue, right? It's like, oh, we need to think that through a little bit. Yeah. So, um, so that's, you look at every candidate and not just who am I going to really like, who am I going to get along with, but who's going to supplement this group of people to create, you know, more than some of the parts. One thing we hear a lot about, everyone's always giving out advice, but one question I like to ask is, what bad advice do you hear being given out a lot? Gosh, I don't know. I don't know. I think there's, I think there's you know, some spirit of truth in every bad advice. So you really just have to. Well, what's the worst advice you've ever been given? Yeah. Don't worry about it. He's got it. What's the bad, what's the bad advice you heard that has truth in it, but it's still bad <laughs> Right? Advice. So if someone says, don't worry about it, I got it. Well, then I start to worry. <laughs> Indeed. What would your close friends say that you are exceptionally good at? I think anybody who knows me, whether they're close to me or not, is going to say that I get very focused. And I get something and I set my mind to it and I make it happen. And I, you know, I like to set goals. I like to accomplish things. And uh, I would say that they would, they would say that I have like a stick stick to that that really um, is probably a little bit different than a lot of people. When the going gets tough, I kind of dig in and keep going. Do you gift any books to people? And if you do, what book have you gifted most? Yeah, of? well, I have a new book that's not really an IT book, uh, not what a wealth management book. Um, no. The book I'm giving out mostly these days is called The Energy Codes by Dr. Sue Mortar. Mm -hmm. And it's really about bridging um, the world of quantum science and spirituality. And it's really about how science and spirituality are kind of converging onto a single body of truth. And uh, it's a, a new path for me that I've discovered since I had this awakening at the Chopra Center. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's a way of about igniting um, an energetic flow in our bodies that allow us to actually even start doing self-healing. And, you know, I feel younger. I have more joy than I did, you know, mm -hmm. maybe six, seven years ago. And a lot of it has been uh, really to become more aligned with myself and to follow some of these Eastern practices, whether it's doing yoga mm -hmm. or breathing exercises and meditation. And, Dr. Sue Mortar in her books talks about bridging that East and West. And so it's, it's a great book. I recommend it for everybody. And um, besides my own book, which, <laughs> besides I, that. which, which I give away for, uh, you oh. know, to get consulting gigs. Of course. So now that you've, you've, uh, you're, uh, we're, we're both advanced in our careers, but we've learned a lot uh, getting to where we are. So if you could send a message to your 25 year old self, what would that be? Yeah, it would be it would be same advice Valerie gave me, but just different words. I would say slow down, enjoy the journey a little more. Uh, I was always enjoy, 
but I was, I always had a lot of passion, mm -hmm. but I always was looking at what's next. Mm -hmm. And I think that I probably should have celebrated the wins a little bit more along the way. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, smelled the roses a little bit too. That's good advice. Uh, is there a quote, final question, is there a quote that you live your life by? There is a quote. I'm not really great at quotes and memorizing things, but generally it says, um, goals, you need to set your dreams high. Mm -hmm. You may not reach them, but there's uh, beauty and joy in the process, in the journey. That's, that's a great quote, Lita. Thank you for sharing that. And, uh, and our time is up. And uh, so see, this was easy. It wasn't hard. Are we done? We're done. Thank you so much. It was great. I really enjoyed talking to you. I'm so glad we got this finally recorded. We, we had a lot of these conversations in airports and, 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 and around at, at client offices, uh, but I wanted to get it uh, down because I thought I felt you have a lot to share and I really love your story and, and, and really uh, learned a lot. I know I learned a lot from you in, in just the short time we were working together. So I wanted to share, I wanted to get some of that out to other people to, to share that. So thanks so very much for being here. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. Hey, it's Craig again, and I hope you got as much out of that episode as I did. I really liked talking to Lita. We could have gone on another hour, but we cut it short. I wanted to remind you of a few things. Please go to Amazon.com and buy Lita's book, How to Lead a Corporate Spinoff, The Tech Leader's Survival Guide to Strategic Divestiture. It's available there, and you can get it overnight to yourself anytime and be reading it by the weekend. Uh, remember to subscribe to this podcast and sh please share this episode on your social media so others can listen to it. And we'll see you all again next time.